I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5, where we will be reading about uh, another uh, key text dealing with biblical manhood and womanhood as we continue our study of this topic. As we normally um, work through books of the Bible, right now we're taking... um, uh, something we don't do that often is uh, looking through this topical series on this important subject that has become even more divisive today. And we began looking at, uh, two weeks ago, a, having a theology of, of gender. What does the Bible say about those things? Looking last Sunday at Old Testament foundations for uh, biblical masculinity. And this morning, looking into the New Testament, um, mentioning a whole bunch of texts and then um, trying to break down some of the responsibilities of manhood. And uh, then uh, next two Sundays, Lord willing, we'll be talking about biblical femininity, um, biblical womanhood, and and what the Bible has to say about those things. And then we will um, attempt to then, how do those things apply according to the scriptures in the church, in the home, and in culture around us? And how should we understand these things? And that's sort of um, that's sort of our roadmap. So let's read Ephesians five, beginning at verse twenty-five. Uh, this section dealing with the family, and dealing with um, particularly husbands. And um, we won't um, be working our way through this text per se in an expository manner, like would be our normal pattern. But noting, um, we will talk more about this. In fact, when we talk about the home, um, but noting. The, the character qualities that are mentioned here about husbands. So let's read what God's holy word uh, says to us, beginning at verse 25. <clears throat> husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. We thank God. Uh, for his word and ask him to help us understand um, what this and these other texts have to say to us this morning. 
There's an interesting website <coughs> you can go to, and it's actually not all that bad, um, called artofmanliness.com. And on this website, there are a whole bunch of articles on everything from, you know, I don't know, it's, it, it's like a boot camp for guys to learn how to be men. So there's tutorials on everything from how to tie ties to, uh, there's an article I found amusing called How to Shave Like Your Grandpa, uh, How to Grill a Steak, How to Fix a Car, How to Install a Washing Machine, uh, to How to Take uh, a, a Lady on a Proper Date. It's an interesting site which reveals that there is a sense in our culture that, that manhood needs an, an effort, a redoubling of effort, and that a lot of men don't feel manly enough or lack the skills to be a man's man in today's society. But of course, there are other sites, there are other articles and media and pop culture that tell us a whole different uh, set of things are what makes a man a man. But sites like these media and pop culture depictions of manhood often has to do with the things that men do. And to be sure, there are those things that we'll talk about this morning. But what I might ask the question is this, is masculinity mainly about skills that we acquire over the course of our lives? Is there, should we set up a, a Man Scouts program um, where we get badges for how to wear suits correctly or start fires, become experts of, in home repair and, and grunt at the right uh, times? Should we uh, issue certificates in manhood to those who complete their training? Well, we've looked at the foundations of manhood and womanhood that are found in the first few chapters of Genesis and saw that men and women... Uh, sort of at, the, at, a, at a baseline, they are equally made in the image of God. They share equal value, equal worth, equal dignity, and importance. And in Genesis 2, we saw that though they are equal in terms of worth, dignity, value, image-bearing, there are distinctions between the first man and first woman at the biological, physical level, of course, but also toward the inclinations and dispositions that they will generally have in fulfilling God's creation mandates to be fruitful, multiply, keep, protect, tend the earth, and so forth. Exercise dominion over the earth. And then if we saw how in Genesis 3, when the fall enters the world, these inclinations are actually reinforced as God outlines different consequences that will affect men and women because of sin, and the fundamental building blocks for understanding manhood and womanhood begin with the fact that men and women are designed by God to complement each other with distinct dispositions and beautiful roles that they each are called to play uh, according to his design for the world, for the family, for a marriage. And uh, that those distinctions, and, and again, we, we speak generally, but those distinctions ought to be ones that we especially as Christians who believe in the authority and the teaching of Scripture, ought not to shy away from, but ought to lean into, ought to embrace and see how we can better reflect God's design for our lives, God's design for our uh, roles. And today, in our uh, second week on masculinity, I want to focus on how the Bible mainly defines masculinity not as a set of skills or, or levels of skill and talents, but actually according to to our character, to the deep character of men. That that's what the Bible is more concerned about. A character that displays God's glory through the imitation of Jesus Christ 
as the ultimate example of manhood. So it's really important that I think for us as believers that we know who we should be like because that would affect our dispositions and how we serve others. It would affect our, our, our inward thinking on how we do those things. So I would suggest that the Bible presents a picture that biblical masculinity is not primarily about the manly skills at the grill or in the garage, not a macho lifestyle, but instead a humble, initiative-taking, risk-absorbing, sacrificial, responsible, generous, protective, loving, Christ-like character. That these are the types of things that the Bible looks to when it describes manhood and when it shows us examples of of godly men. But how can we have this type of character? It's not something you can purchase. It's not something you can just download at a seminar. It can't be earned by following a simple formula. It comes ultimately and only through having our minds renewed and our hearts changed by the Spirit of God through the Word of God for the glory of God in our lives, day in and day out, as we seek God's wisdom in His Word and seek His help by His Holy Spirit. And if we're not doing that, if, if as men we are not taking the initiative to study the Bible, to not just study it and read it, but then to think, how should my life, how should my life in relationship to my wife, my children, my co-workers, my employer or employees, my church family, be changed by the things that I'm reading in God's Word? What does it tell me that a man really looks like? And, and both internally, but also practically in the lives of others. So I, I've I found this definition, sort of cobbled it together, from principles found in God's words that will sort of, I think, help guide our thinking on this topic. And, and we won't cover this in, in detail, but I, I do think it's helpful in that it says that biblical masculinity is displayed by a sense of loving or benevolent responsibility to tend or work God's creation, to provide for and protect others, and to express loving, sacrificial leadership as instructed by God's Word. So a sense of loving or benevolent responsibility to work or tend God's creation, and thereby providing for, protecting others, and expressing loving, sacrificial leadership as instructed by God's Word. Uh, in various contexts. Now, before we jump into all the imperatives, there is this phrase, a sense of benevolent or loving responsibility, meaning that biblical masculinity is uh, self-conscious. It, it is ta- it's talking about our attitudes toward other men and to other women in our lives and, and in the different circumstances and roles that we have been put in. And it is loving or benevolent in that sense, in that it primarily has in its mind the seeking of the good of others through sacrificial service. And it is a weighty stewardship given by God for which God will hold men responsible. Responsible for what? Well, that's what we want to look at. What are men called to do? And... Um, generally throughout the Bible, what are men called to do? Well, we looked at the first one really last Sunday, but let's just go over it briefly. Men are called to work. We saw that God formed man from the dust of the ground in Genesis 2, and it was the ground or the, the garden in the Garden of Eden that he would eventually be placed by God to work and keep. 
And just as God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens out of the ground, man was given the responsibility of naming these animals, one of the first tasks in his exercise of dominion. Therefore, he's called to tend or to work the ground, uh, part of God's creation. Then the fall comes. And, And how did the fall and the consequences of sin entering the world affect man's relationship to the ground or to work in general? Well, in one sense, the only thing that changed is the hardship and pain that would be faced. And so we read in Genesis 3.17 that cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. But then we see in Genesis 3.23 that God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So as you read in Genesis 2 and 3, and as we looked at more extensively last Sunday, we see that the man's God-given disposition and inclination to work the ground, or to work in general, not everybody's a farmer now, uh, is affected, that that inclination is affected. It's made more difficult, it's made painful, but it's not radically changed because of the fall. That the image of God still remains, and the, and the same basic des- dispositions of the heart of men is still there. That of to work hard and to provide for his family and so forth. We'll talk more about that in a minute. No, it isn't saying that men work and that women don't. That's not what we're saying at all. They both work in various ways, both inside and outside of the home. But it is saying that men in particular have been created by God with a distinct inclination toward providing order to creation as representatives of God's dominion on the earth. And part of that is working in in whatever field God has placed us in. So we're called not to laziness, not to apathy, but to work, to initiative, to activity in the Lord. And so whether you're a a man with a career, uh, entering into a career, preparing for a career in college or in some vocational training, or whether you're a young man who is is, uh, growing up, you should have this as goals. These should be goals for you. To What will I do to work? Not primarily, and again, think of this in terms of benevolent work. Meaning, not, will I, not what will I do just to make, to make money and be rich, but what will I do in order to care for, provide for my family, make the world a more beautiful place, to take care of the others, to benefit others, to support others, to support my church, my family, and so forth and so on. That your, that your work becomes benevolent, not just self-serving and selfish. So men are called to work. We looked at that. But, and then going on to some new things, or, or things that we touched on last week, but we want to talk more about. Secondly, men are called to provide. Men are called to provide. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5, a few chapters after what we read earlier, If anyone does not provide for his relatives or his family, especially the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so there's a verse where Paul is is calling out those who aren't providing for those that they've been given responsibility over. Now, in in some sense, this is true of both men and women, but taking what we know from Genesis 2 and 3, the man's calling is to draw forth food from God's creation combined with what we see about husbands and fathers leading their families, as we read in Ephesians 5 and 6, this verse serves as, I think, a a pretty insightful text on the particular responsibility men should feel for the provision of their family, providing for their family. It's one of the main roles of our work. And in providing for the ones for whom we were responsible to, or for, men should reflect God's own provision 
of all that we need for life and godliness. That God has provided for us in such a way. He provides for us, uh, given us everything we need in this world to live, and He's given us everything we need in the special revelation of the Scriptures, in the story and the life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to have a relationship with Him. So God is the ultimate provider, and men are to reflect that provision. Christ is the one who provides the way of salvation, and therefore men are to be emulating the fact that we are to provide in whatever ways that we have responsibility of uh, for those around us. Now this aspect of masculinity most surely applies in the home within the context of marriage and family. A husband's responsibility to provide doesn't mean, by the way, <clears throat> that wife can't assist in earning income. Uh, that's not, that would not be a, a right application of this text. In fact, if you read Proverbs 31, we talk about the Proverbs 31 wife. Um, the, the wife in Proverbs does a lot of amazing things, including like buying and selling fields and, and, and doing things. So she's actually actively at work in not just keeping her home, but also you know, doing, doing work to provide income. So the, this doesn't mean that wives can't assist in, in earning income. And uh, what we're getting at is this. When there is no bread on the table, it's the husband, it is the father who should feel the pressure to get it there because he is ultimately responsible. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, they both sinned, but the responsibility ultimately lay at Adam's feet for not protecting his wife from the serpent, for not leading his wife to reject the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of the enemy and instead listen to God's word. So I understand that every home will be different. Every home has its unique differences, whether there are children or no children, physical uh, ability, disability or illness, unemployment, financial debt. All of this is true and, and we'll talk more about this in, in future weeks. But um, it doesn't mean that the principle still doesn't apply. And, and you may have to apply it differently in your context, but is provision, is emulating God and his provision for us a priority for you as a husband, as a father, for providing for your children? Is that what you think of whenever you are doing your work, whenever you are seeking and making decisions? Now, outside of marriage, especially for those who are single, men who are single, applying this verse can mean whether a son or a brother, an uncle, a grandfather, a, a friend... Um, a neighbor, a co-worker, a church member, that all of us should find ways in our various contexts and our various spheres of influence to step up and provide for those who need help. Within the context of family, it does mean that sometimes we help out relatives and, uh, and, we, and we find the way to do that. It could mean providing financially. It could mean you know mowing the grass, cleaning the gutter of an elderly uh, family or friend, within the church, okay? It can mean helping your nephew when he yells at you in the middle of church. But on a very practical level, for single men, it strongly suggests to take responsibility. If you're, if you're going on a date, I would suggest that it is biblically the right thing to do if you're taking a young lady on a date to pay for that date. To not be passive, to begin even in your dating relationships to being proactive and initiative-taking when you are dating, courting, pursuing a woman. Showing your intention to provide for her should the Lord lead you to marriage. You don't want to begin by being the passive, by being the inactive, reactionary person. But show your intention. Step up and lead. 
And it doesn't have to be just in the dating sphere, but this is why it is important still for men, even if sometimes these days we get yelled at for doing so, for trying to open doors for, for ladies, for you know, doing these things. Why? Because we're showing initiative. Some, if the world doesn't understand and the world hates us for doing these things, well, then so be it. But our job is to take initiative in leading, whether it's in the broad context of culture at large or whether it's in a very specific context of a, of a dating relationship, of a marriage relationship. Are you taking a notion to being a provider in various ways? Where a man can be helpful in an appropriate way, he should be. That's the point. And he should be sensitive to opportunities that exist and take the initiative to act on them. This is part of what it means biblically to be a man. Third thing, men are called to protect. We talked about this last week in the sense of keep, work and keep. And in Genesis 2.15, the man was commanded to keep the garden, which is a word elsewhere used in Scripture in reference to the role of soldiers, shepherds who keep their flocks, priests who keep watch in the temple, and even God himself who is our keeper. And it denotes a watching over, a guarding, a protecting role for those under their care. So, for example, when God command, condemned the shepherds and leaders in Israel in Ezekiel 34, he rebukes them for not protecting the sheep. He says, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Now, this is a pretty, pretty harsh condemnation for the leaders, the men who were supposed to be leading in the context of Ezekiel's time and Israel's life. And this goes to everything from things that we laugh and joke about, and they are funny, but it goes down to, yeah, when there's that noise at 2 o'clock in the morning coming from downstairs, that you know what, yes, yes it is, uh, maybe not every single time, but generally it is the man's responsibility to go find out what it is, to not send his wife if there might be danger, whether that danger is a guy with a bat, a bat or a gun, or if it more likely is a wood creaking floor and a spider on the wall. And it doesn't mean, again, all these things are speaking about roles and general traits of responsibility, not abilities. Right? Responsibility, not ability. Can a lot of wives probably defend their homes as well or better than their husbands? Are some husbands more afraid of the mouse in the bathtub or the spider on the wall than their wives? Maybe. But on some level, that doesn't matter. Part of being men is stepping up and saying, despite my fear, despite my maybe even weakness. God has placed me in this role. I take it seriously. And so this begins with, again, taking initiative to protect. The point I'm trying to make is that biblical masculinity senses this God-given responsibility to step forward, to put ourselves between the threat and other people that we love, which would certainly include uh, other, uh, other women and children, regardless whether they're even our wives or not in society. This is why men, historically, have been called upon to serve in the military. Does that mean women can't serve in the military? No. But I do think probably it would be inappropriate for us to draft women into military service. Because women, 
uh, biblically, are not the ones who are called to protect and defend our nation. doesn't mean that they can't, and when they do, we support them. And, uh, and, and, and if you have served, then that's a great thing. But it is not the primary calling of women in a society to defend the society. It is the responsibility of men to do that. And in our day and age, unfortunately, that sounds chauvinistic. That sounds misogynistic. Uh, but biblically, this is the way God designed us, to care for other people in this way. Men are designed to sacrificially protect others. Men, like it or not, are the, are the cannon fodder of the world. They're not supposed to be the women, are not supposed to be this. And I think it's part of our, it's part of the, the kind of declension of society when we see not just the rise of, you know, LGBTQ plus trends in our culture, but also when we see that the rise of sort of radical forms of feminism and egalitarianism have actually pushed us to putting our daughters and our mothers and our sisters in, in, in real harm's way uh, because um, men won't step up to do it. Okay? So this protection isn't just limited, though, to physical danger. Men in the home seek to protect their family's spiritual well-being above all. So men who are leaders should, uh, in the church, as we looked at, the qualifications for elders and deacons, but here primarily elders, are called to guard the church's doctrine by being ready to defend the faith, by being able to teach the church and equip the members of the church to know the truth so that they can see and understand counterfeits. It's kind of why we're doing this, what we're doing even this morning. And so husbands, fathers, men ought to be taking the initiative and making sure that those that they have influence on those relationships that they have are protected from bad doctrine, are protected from cultural phenomenon. Single men should seek to protect other sisters in Christ by doing things like, you know, a single man can make sure that uh, women who are by themselves are, are taken care of and that they have someone to drive them home uh, after evening services or after being somewhere. Again, if you're in a dating relationship, that, that means making sure that when that person, when that, that date of yours is with you, that you are responsible to make sure that she's protected. It means making sure and watching out for the younger members of church and society to make sure that they aren't abused or, or hurt. In the children's ministry, to make sure that, that kids are safe at Awana or standing in the gap between two friends who aren't getting along. Being a shock, shock absorber or mediator to being peace, peace between individuals that you have relationships with. These are all different ways. The applications of this are sort of limitless depending on your context. But this is precisely what Christ portrays for us on the cross. He steps in front of the firing squad for us. He sacrifices himself on behalf of his friends, on behalf of his bride. He bears God's wrath for us as a supreme form of protection and covering. And he continues to intercede for us. He continues to pray for us. Because again, some of these things come down to spiritual matters. So as men, are we praying for those in our lives? Are we praying for other members of our church and our family? So men are called to be protectors. But next, men are called to lead. Men are called to lead. Men have dispositions and are created to take responsibility for others. 
We've already seen this in terms of provision and protection and work. And this becomes formalized in a pattern of leadership for men in a whole bunch of different contexts. God gave Adam commands with the expectation that he would lead Eve in obeying and worshiping God. And he then establishes a pattern of male leadership among the covenant people of God through the prophets, priests, and kings of the Old Testament. And Jesus taught his disciples to exercise leadership through service. And then his disciples appointed male elders to provide leadership in the context of the church overseers, or bishops would be the, the, the term for overseer there in, in 1 Timothy 3. But the word overseer, as we would say, the word overseer, or bishop, elder, uh, or pastor, shepherd, uh, all these different words refer to the same office of leadership within the church. And husbands, as we read in Ephesians 5, are called to be the head of their families, to be the head of their wives. So, to be a man is to, and this is really important for us, part of being a man is to welcome and not run from the mantle of responsibility of leadership. To not shy away from it, but to embrace it. To look for opportunities to be a leader. And this can happen whether we're old or young. It can happen with siblings. If you're a sibling, especially a male sibling, and you have sisters or younger brothers, do you look for opportunities to lead well? Not to domineer, not to exert mean domineering authority, but to practice making sure that you are, are leading. And that means showing, being a person of character around them. What do male leaders look like? Well, in 1 Timothy 3 that we looked at and Ephesians 5, we see lots of characteristics of what male leadership is supposed to look like. In 1 Timothy 3, we see what kind of traits are necessary for elders, men who are leading in the local church. But notice that aside from a few of those qualifications, like being able to teach in the context of the gathered church and not being a recent convert, the rest of these qualities don't have to do with the talent of, of doctrinal presentation or so, or so much, nor do they have to do with the size of, of a guy's muscles or the length of his resume, but they do, uh, they do concern the content of his character, his holiness, and, and since this list defines the character of elders, and because elders are supposed to be examples of biblical men, it is a good description of biblical masculinity in general. And all men would do well to aspire to meet the descriptions found in elders, even if they never serve as an elder in a formal sense, even if they're not equipped by God to, to teach. And we, we, we see that an overseer is to be above reproach. Doesn't mean perfect, but is not to have to have anything in his life that would easily call into question the content of his teaching or his ministry. He's to be the husband of one wife or a, or a one woman man, meaning that his relationship in his, with his wife is to be that of, of a character. And if he's not married, then we would say, like Paul himself wasn't, and Timothy maybe wasn't early on at this point in his life, then they're to have, be blameless in their relationships with other women, to be sober minded self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and then again, able to teach, might not be the, the skill that God has given to an individual uh, for the sake of leading the church, but are you able to, to teach others about anything? Are you able to instruct others and help others to see uh, what to do? You might not be able to be a teacher in terms of doctrine or 
you know, preparing sermons or those types of things. But all of us can teach others something. Managing, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, managing his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for his church, for God's church? Not be a recent convert, well, that may not apply in every sense because that's specifically about eldership, but listen why not to be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Well, you may not be preparing for eldership, and therefore it doesn't matter whether you're recent or, or uh, been a convert for a long time, but uh, you can definitely, easily, no matter how long you've been alive or how long you've been a Christian, it's easy to be, be puffed up with conceit. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. So depending on your experience or your background... There are a variety of thoughts that may come into your mind when you hear that men are called to lead. So, based on this text in Ephesians 5 that we read, dealing with the way husbands ought to lead their families and to lead their their wives and their children, um, I've gathered a handful of of statements about the meaning of biblical masculine leadership. The first is this, that biblical masculinity expresses itself not in the demand to be served, but in the strength to serve and sacrifice for the good of others. Jesus said in Luke 22, Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. Leadership, according to Jesus, isn't demanding demeanor, but it is service. It is servant leadership. And sadly, many leaders today, whether they're husbands, whether they're fathers, whether they're pastors, or any other type of leadership Uh, role that you might serve in, uh, use those under their authority for their own benefit. They're not benevolent seeking the good of the others that they're leading, but selfish in seeking to abuse those under under their authority. And if that has ever happened to you, please understand that that is not godly leadership, regardless of the context that it came in. And I'm sorry that you experienced that. But if the goal of leadership truly is helping others toward holiness, about help, did you notice that in Paul's description in Ephesians 5, immediately after saying that the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, Paul says, so husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, sacrificially, in order to make her holy. That you have a desire for the good, the beautification, the the holiness of your wife through your leadership. Not the domineering, uh, using, abusive, uh, in ways small and great, of your wives for your own selfishness. And this is the way it should be for every relationship, for every pastor, for every uh, boss, for every um, father, whatever relationship of authority you have. It's, do you seek the holiness? Do you seek the betterment of those that you lead? And are you trying to find ways to sacrificially lead them? By sacrificing, that doesn't just mean be willing to die. Most husbands are willing to do that. Most fathers, I would dare say, are really willing to do that. And I don't think it's just lip service. I think almost every husband in this room, almost every father in this room, would, would 
would be willing to die, would be able to lose, willing to lose their lives for their wives and their children and their families, and probably for many others in this building, in this room, and others that you love. What is, that's actually not that hard because most of us won't ever have to face that. What's really hard in sacrificial leadership is saying, I'm not going to get to do what I want to do for the sake of my wife or my children because they come first. By the way, in my years of pastoring and doing counseling, and that's only been for me about 15 years, but I've checked with others, and I've ne- we've never heard very many women seek for counsel because their husband loved and served them too much. So any man that uses the word submit as some sort of wild card in marriage to simply get his way has drastically misunderstood what it means to be a servant leader. Men must lead, but do so with the prosperity and the blessing of others in mind. And again, we think here of Jesus who led us, his bride, to holiness and heaven through dying on the cross, through teaching, through showing, sometimes, yes, through discipline. But though he looked weak by the world's definition of power, he showed infinite strength by rejecting the world's understanding of power and embodying a servant leadership. That's why so many of the Jews, in fact, rejected him. And so like Jesus, biblical men are to use their leadership not to gain life, but to lay down their lives for the good of others. Two, biblical masculinity doesn't have to initiate every action, but should feel the responsibility to provide a general pattern of initiative. Let me break that down. It doesn't mean, like I said earlier, that you have to be the one to make every decision, to start every conversation, to think of everything. That's not any leader's job. In fact, any, you read any books on you know, leadership in the workplace, see, books about good CEOs and, and, and how to lead as a, as a manager or those types of things, they will tell you that micromanaging does never, hardly ever works out. And all of us have probably had bosses who are micromanagers at some point, and it's not a pleasant environment. And it doesn't actually help the efficiency of the team. So even from a practical, even the world recognizes that this is not a way to do it. But it does mean that though you don't have to be the initiator of every action or every decision or, every, or everything that happens, men should feel in their responsibility, in their spheres of authority, they should be providing the general pattern of initiative for, um, for them. So for single men, this means that biblical masculinity is evidenced by taking initiative in your friendships or with your roommates if you have them to ensure that God is honored in your home and in your relationships. It means that you're the one that steps up uh, and, and, and helps friends or warns friends or admonishes them in private. Practically raise the bar on being accountable. Set the tone for expectations of living in such a way. What about those men who are husbands and fathers? Well, it means that in a family setting, husbands do not need to and really should not do every uh, ounce of the thinking and planning, and Lord help you if you try, but that men are to take overall responsibility for initiating and carrying through the spiritual planning for family life. So a good examination for question, whether a good examination question for men, whether you're single or married, would be would those who know you best describe you as reactive or proactive primarily? In other words, are you characterized as somebody who wisely thinks ahead or is always having to be told what to do? 
And again, it doesn't mean that you necessarily are going to be, <clears throat> it doesn't mean that you have to be, uh, you know, boisterous and, and bold and, and mean, but it's, it's just, uh, how are you leading? Are you leading or are you only ever and always following? So for married men, there are going to be many times and a lot of areas in the specifics of daily life, particularly in the life of family and kids, where wives are going to plan and, and, uh, and initiate numerous things within the house and family. And that's absolutely fine and, and, and right. But husbands are likely failing in their leadership responsibilities uh, if their wives are consistently and mostly having to take all the initiative in things like getting the family to church, gathering the family for devotions, deciding what moral standards are going to be required for their children. Now, ideally, this should be done together. You're there to do this together, to have conversations. But men, are you leading? Are you leading through the, by the scriptures? Are you sacrificially leading for your families? Do you remember what Joshua said when Israel was gathered together as he exhorted them to stay faithful to God? Joshua 24 says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And Ephesians 6, 4 that we read, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's just two verses among many that we could have chosen that refer to the leadership and, and initiative of fathers to do this. Does that mean that mothers can provoke their children to anger? Well, no. Does that mean that they're, that they're allowed a pass? And surely both parents are going to do this from time to time and fail in this area. But fathers are the ones who are told primarily to have uh, the discipline and instruction of the Lord paramount in their kids' lives. Again, it doesn't mean that moms and wives aren't don't have the responsibility to teach their kids about Jesus or to lead their children in the ways of, of the Lord, but it means that fathers have this responsibility, ultimately. Now, in, there are difficult situations, and especially the church ought to have a lot of grace in situations where the husband and father <clears throat> is not a believer, because in these cases, the wife is going to have to take on more of that spiritual leadership, much like Timothy's grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice did. And a lot of wisdom is needed for these sorts of situations. And if you are a, a woman married to an unbelieving man, know that you can seek out counsel from other godly women and from your pastors and find encouragement from others to help you in this task. Number three. Biblical masculinity accepts the burden of the final say in disagreements, but doesn't presume to use it in every circumstance or in every instance. Again, men often fall into one of two extremes when it comes to leadership. Men tend to be people of extremes in some ways. Men tend to either be domineering or passive. And even if you're more balanced, you probably tend toward one side or the other. And you need to know what that is. You need to examine your own heart. To be domineering is to be oppressive and overbearing. To be passive is to be apathetic and lazy. And both are actually dangerous um, uh, derelictions of biblical leadership. In marriage and the family, husbands are to be the one because they are going to be the ones who answer to God for the direction of their family, so he needs to be aware of and embrace the responsibility God has given. That it's fine, and it's actually appropriate, as I said, to let your wives lead in certain situations. But just know that even if, if your wife um, leads in a situation and things go bad, ultimately it's your fault. It's still your fault. And it's not good enough 
for you to pass the blame and say, well, you're the one that made that decision. To turn it into an argument after the fact because you failed at leadership. You be like a general and say, it was, my, it was my decision, even though it was somebody under my command, the buck stops with me. Do we accept that? Do we embrace that in our leadership? Again, this doesn't mean the husband should make all decisions by himself. He really shouldn't. That would be wrong, because you have been given a helper fit for you. And if she is a godly woman who speaks with wisdom, that is a rare and wonderful thing for you to have. And so, men, we need help. But let's use the help God has given us in order to lead better. Fourth. Biblical masculinity, biblical leadership, is a call to repentance and humility. Again, Luke 22, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader is one who serves. Every man should humble himself before God in sorrow for his past failures, for the indwelling tendency to either shrink from responsibility or overstep them. 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. To be a leader, men must become first humble and recognize they don't have all the answers and they don't have it within themselves, the, the sufficient wisdom uh, or, or self-autonomy to lead in every situation at home, or in the workplace, in the church, but that ultimately God is the one who gives men authority and wisdom and equips us by his word and his spirit to, take out, to carry out those tasks. So one of the main things men can do is to be quick is to be humble, to, be, to not let our egos get in the way of our leadership, to be the first to admit when we've been wrong, when we've failed, to seek repentance with God, and to seek reconciliation with our wives, with our children, with our friends, with our neighbors, to be the first to say, I'm sorry, to lead not just in making decisions, but to lead in bringing peace, to be leaders in, in giving up something that you may want, or, or feel like you have to win the argument. These are ways that you can lead sacrificially, humbly, and repentantly. Because you're going to make mistakes. Because in this area, just like in every other area, we are all sinners. But are we the first to be humble and repentant and seek reconciliation? Okay, last point. Men are called to varied relationships. Meaning that in our leadership and in our masculinity, we have various ways in which that's going to be expressed. And it's different based on the variety of ways in which, uh, in the relationships that we have. I mean, it's going to be, look, a little, your, your masculinity is going to express different things at home with your wife and your kids than it is going to be at your workplace or with your friends, okay? Uh, just, you know, when men get together and it's just men, uh, they get rather stupid, and that's fine. Uh, you know, there is a lot more grunting, and there's a lot more, uh, you know, of that sort of thing. You know, when the chicken wings are out and the cornhole board is down, all bets are off, man. <laughs> right? And so, you know, guys can say things to each other that uh, if they said them to their wives or their kids, not only would it be sinful, but they'd be sleeping outside for a while. Right? But, man, we call each other idiots all the time, and it's just fine. But, men, don't call your wife an idiot. Right? <laughs> That's not going to work well for you. We have varied relationships, and, there's, and these various contexts, even biblically, are given different sets of responsibilities. The context of your relationships help determine the appropriate ways that men and women are to relate to each other. 
And so like Adam, men should feel a sense of responsibility for the well-being of others. However, that role of Adam's authority over Eve was grounded in the context of their covenant marriage relationship. So a husband and a wife have different responsibilities to each other than two single church members of the opposite sex. But it doesn't mean they don't have a relationship of responsibility to each other. An elder and a female church member will relate differently than a brother and sister or a father and a son. So there are differing responsibilities for the way that men relate to women in business, in government, in friendship, in the neighborhood, in dating relationships, in marriage, in family. And we don't have time, obviously, to go over those, but it's just useful to point out that the, script, that the scriptures are actually prescriptive in formalizing male headship and authority in two spheres of covenant relationships. That is, a husband is called to lead his wife and family in the home, and male elders are called to exercise authority in the local church. And though all men will not and should not exercise authority over all women, men generally should feel a sense of responsibility for the good of all women. Paul says to Timothy, a younger man, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. So there in 1 Timothy 5, Paul is telling Timothy, every relationship you have within the church, whether it's older men and women, younger men and women, your peers, you have responsibility for them, but do it in purity, do it in holiness. So men, do you have fathers and mothers in the church that you respect and looked up to? Younger brothers that you take responsibility to mentor and to help? Would brotherly be an accurate way to describe your relationships with other women in the body of Christ that you're not married to or related to? Do the women of our church feel protected and cared for in a respectful way by our interactions with them? I would encourage you to take inventory of your relationships and see, do they fit this family-like purity test? And if they don't, then be the first to be humble and repent. So this working summary of biblical masculinity, though I haven't covered everything the Bible, of course, has to say, we see that in general it is the image of a shepherd. Moses, who is a shepherd leader. David, a shepherd king. Or Christ, the good shepherd who came to lay down his life for the sheep. One who tends, provides, protects, serves, and leads. Like the Lord in Psalm 23, one who leads others to green pastures and still waters for the restoration of their souls and their welfare. And so the challenge comes to us today for husbands and fathers, some of you have probably neglected your wives and your kids by spending too much time doing things selfishly that you really want to do at the expense of them. Some of you are prone to being lazy and passive. Some of you are too arrogant or domineering. And some of you simply have given yourselves so much to your job or to your school or to your other activities, that the garden of your home is lacking nourishment and needs tending. To men who are single, maybe you've acted selfishly in the way you thought of others. Some have been sinfully passive and ignored opportunities to provide for and protect others around them simply because you thought of yourself as single and not having that responsibility. Some have forgotten what it means for us to relate to our sisters in Christ with purity. But know that all of us have sinned and fallen short. 
Which is why the Bible continually contrasts two men. The first Adam was created to steward God's creation, to provide leadership for his bride, to obey God's commands, and he failed. The second Adam was the perfect man who served sacrificially, used his authority for good, laid down his life for his bride, and fully obeyed his father's commands. So Jesus, as in all things, is the one we look to because only he perfectly displays a biblical masculinity where Adam and Moses and David and Peter and Paul and Kenny and whoever else we want to name failed. That no matter how much Jesus could bench press or how much money he could have made in the workplace, that wasn't what he came to do. He came to seek and to serve and to lead. Now, not all of us, none of us have the the same role, the same goals that Jesus did, of course. But he does provide for us an example. He does provide for us a pattern. And all of us have fallen short of God's design for masculinity. So we must, therefore, when we fail, like the first Adam, look to the second Adam, who both forgives our sins, empowers us in our weakness and selfishness to love and lead like he has. And that is ultimately who we look to. That's who we look to for everything. From beginning and end, not just as an example, but more importantly, as a savior. Because the greatest gift that a man can give to his family, to his wife, to his um, company, to um, to his community, to this world, is to be a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, it is far more important that you make yourself right with God, that you quit trusting in your own abilities, in your own self-righteous arrogance to think you can earn your way into God's presence. Humble yourself and repent for the very first time uh, to the God who saves. To trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Find salvation in Him and then seek to lead as he has called you to. And that's for every person here, especially men, but not just men, but to every man, woman, and child. If you are here this morning and you don't know Christ, I implore you to trust in him and then come talk to us about what that looks like. We want to help you walk through that. Look always to the second and greater Adam, the second and greater David, the second and greater Moses, and the better than all of us for our salvation and for our example, and then be willing to seek forgiveness when we fail. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And though uh, we mentioned lots of different texts and lots of different ideas, may we be encouraged to remember that at the heart of biblical masculinity is not a set of skills, it is not a, uh, a cultural depiction of machismo or lack thereof as the culture ebbs and flows, but it is a character that comes from the mandates that you have given to men in Scripture. And so help us to embody those and help us to, by faith uh, and repentance, lead out in the areas of responsibility that you've given to each of us. And for all of us this morning, Father, help us um, to, by your Spirit, seek you first today. And may you create in us uh, clean hearts. May you create new spirits within us. May you give us new songs to sing of your goodness and grace, even as we close this morning in song. So help us to do that and, uh, and help us to love you better 
in Jesus' name and help us to love our families and our friends and our church members and all those around us in our spheres of influence and authority. Help us to do better as we follow the pattern of Jesus Christ and the pattern of your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.